It's a cold day, and for those that are watching live stream, I'll just let you know how cold it is. Uh, we joke about the weather in Canada. Len came in. We were praying this morning really early. He said, Canada has nine of the ten, of, of the ten coldest places on the planet right now. We got nine of them. So yay, Canada, right? <laughs> so you have to be kind of a hardy lot to live in our country. That's the way it works. Uh, some of you weren't that excited about that announcement. I don't know. <laughs> I just want to remind us that next Sunday you get a little extra sleep because we're only going to have one service at 10 a.m., right? So everybody recognizes that. I recognize it's Christmas Day. I know some of you won't be here, but some of you will. And uh, we have three services on Saturday. So we know there's going to be a lot of opportunity to celebrate uh, Jesus' birth over the season that we're in. I'm going to have you stand this morning. And while you're standing, I want to just also say that I know it's so hard to think of January because if you're like me, you're kind of locked into Christmas. But in January, we're going to be signing up for classes. Oh, that seems so far away. But here's what we need from you. If you're a young, younger person, you have children, we want to provide uh, child care on Wednesday nights for you. So, but what we want from you is to let us know that you're going to take a class and you need child care. Does that sound favorable? Because one of the things we have to do is figure out how many child care workers we will need for our classes. So if you tell us ahead of time, we can be well prepared. If you don't tell us ahead of time, it becomes disastrous. So please let us know ahead of time. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you this morning that when we have uh, faith in our hearts and we hear your word, something profound happens within us. And so I pray today that faith would be mixed with uh, the hearing of your word and that something dynamic will happen in our souls today. Lord, as we relook at the story of Christmas, now from a different vantage point, Lord, may we hear it not just in the past, but may we hear something of the challenge not only in Mary's life, but in our lives as well, in the present. And we thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you may be seated. So you already have, I've given it away. We're gonna turn to the Gospel of Luke this morning. If you were here last Sunday, we looked at it from a spiritual dynamic. We looked at it from an eternal reality. If you're interested in that, you can listen to uh, the streaming service. You can still hear them. But this is going to be looking at it from the human vantage point. I love this story. George Danzig was a senior at Stanford University during the 1930s. That's a long time ago now. That's almost 100 years ago. Isn't that amazing? You know, uh, all of the seniors, because of the economic realities of that time, knew there was no work. They were in the time called the Great Depression. Maybe one job. And so George... He knew that there was a slim chance to get a job, and so he, he knew he wasn't at the top of his class. So this final exam, he hoped if he could achieve a perfect score on his final test that maybe this would push him over the top and he'd get a job. Well, he studied so hard that he arrived late for the exam. Some of you, uh, you know, burning the midnight oil. I don't know what he was doing, but he got there late. And when he, when he got to class, he, he already could see people were already taking the exam. He was so embarrassed, he just picked up his paper, slunk into his desk, sat down, and he worked on the eight problems on the test paper. And then he started on the two that were written on the blackboard. That's before whiteboards and all the other conveniences. Try as he might, he just couldn't solve those two problems on the blackboard. So he was devastated because he knew 
out of the 10 problems, he had already missed two. And so he took a chance. He went up to the professor at the end of the class. He said, listen, if you'll give me a couple of days to work on the two uh, that I just couldn't figure out, he said, uh, I'd, I'd be so appreciative of that. And the professor said, sure, write them down. You can have a couple days to work on them. He was kind of surprised that he wanted to do that. So George, he rushed home, plunged into those equations with a vengeance. He spent hour after hour working on them, couldn't find a solution for one of them. He couldn't just figure it out. The other one he had figured out, but this one he just couldn't do it. So he turned in his test. He knew he had lost all chance of a job, probably the darkest moment of his life at that point. The next morning, there was a pounding on his door. George, George, it was the math teacher. George, he kept shouting, you've made math history. What? George didn't understand what was going on. He didn't know what this professor was rattling about. And then the professor explained to him, before the exam, he said, he had encouraged the class to keep on trying in spite of setback and failure. Don't be discouraged, he had counseled. Remember, there are classic problems that no one can solve. He says, even Einstein was unable to lock, unlock their secrets. And then he wrote two of those problems on the blackboard. <laughs> George had solved one of those problems and, uh, that were deemed impossible. And he had thought they were part of his exam. So that very morning, the professor made George Danzig his assistant. And he taught at Stanford until he retired. What a great story, right? I love that story. Well, how many know that there are challenges in life, and we all face them. At the time of Jesus' birth, the people of Judea, uh, you have to understand how this kind of plays out in the background. I think we'll get a deeper understanding of the story. If you look at the province of uh, Israel, there's a southern part where Jerusalem, Judea, it's a province there, and then there's Samaria in a little further north, and then a little further north is Galilee. Now, the Judeans had an attitude toward the Galileans. I don't know if you know what their attitude was, but let me explain to you how they thought. You see, for the Jewish people, it's all about proximity to the holy place. So, it, you know, you, you want to be as close to God as you possibly can. Some of you have come with me to Israel, and you'll notice Jewish people, they're praying at the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, however you want to call it. Why do they pray there? It's because it's, it's the base of the Temple Mount, and then if you go through the rabbinical tunnels, you get to a place where they feel like this is probably in proximity to where the Holy of Holies was. And so proximity, physical proximity to where God's presence is is considered the most important thing. So you can understand, if you live in Jerusalem, which is where the temple is, that's a holy place. That's why they, you know, the, you know, the temple is the holy temple, and Jerusalem is the holy city. But if you're living as a Galilean quite a ways north, you're not considered quite as holy, okay? It's all about separation. It's all about purity laws. If you study Judaism, it's all about that. And so the Judeans always looked down on the Galileans because in Galilee, there were many communities that were filled with Gentiles. And so the Judeans, they were Jewish, but they seemed to intermingle more with the Gentiles. That's not considered kosher. So they were always, you know, like, you're not quite as spiritual as we are. You're getting a picture of what's going on here. And then, on top of that, then you have this little town called Nazareth. Now, today it's a big city, but back then, it was a very underdeveloped, rustic. As a matter of fact, most of the people in Nazareth probably were still living in caves. 
There was some housing. It was very poor. As a matter of fact, even the Galileans had an attitude towards Nazareth. And we know that for a fact because remember the time when Philip is telling his friend Nathaniel about Jesus. We picked this up in John's gospel. It says, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. That's also in Galilee. Philip found Nathanael said, hey, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law about whom the prophets also wrote. In other words, this is, you know, this is probably the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, I want you to notice Nathanael's response to this. He says, Nazareth? Can any good thing come from there? Now, how many are already catching on? This is a town that's kind of frowned upon, looked down upon. And Nathaniel says, well, why don't you come and see? The point is an insignificant place, right? An undesirable place, a despised place, end of the tracks place. I mean, if you were living in some community, you go, these are the, you know, the, the you know, I don't know, hillbillies. These are the, you know, the, the, the people that are way out there and they don't have it together. This is the people from Nazareth. And you're telling me that the Messiah is from Nazareth? It, it was not computing in, Na, in Nathaniel's head. Now, how many know Jesus had a little chat with Nathaniel, straightened him out in a hurry, and uh, he became a follower of Christ. Why do I say all of this? Because God often chooses the most unlikely. God has a way of choosing uh, people that most people wouldn't choose. A young teenage girl from Nazareth doesn't make any sense, you know? Very powerful. So, God is looking at what I would consider the obscure, the unknown, the ordinary. God likes to use unlikely people, ordinary people, people that most people wouldn't pick, you know? I've actually looked at these apostles. I don't know, some of these guys, they had some issues, you know? You probably wouldn't pick them for your company, If you were, you know, hiring people, you'd be going through your resume, you probably wouldn't be picking these guys. They had some issues. I'm just pointing that out to you. But I've noticed one thing about God, you know, he does pick obscure people. Let me give you an example. Here's Gideon. He's hiding because the Midianites are raiding the Israelites. He's hiding in a wine press, and he's, you know, trying to get a little grain. He's trying to do a little uh, threshing work with the grain, right? And an angel shows up, he says, thou mighty man of valor. Gideon's looking around. <laughs> Who's he talking to? I mean, this guy's hiding for fear. And the angel is saying, you're a mighty man of valor. And eventually God is saying to him, I'm choosing you. And he goes, hey, I'm the least in my family. I'm the least tribe. You know, remember all of the things that he's saying? I'm, I'm telling you, God picks these kind of people. How about, here's another one. This is a classic case David is out taking care of sheep and Samuel comes along and says to Jesse, God wants to anoint the next king from your sons. Jesse goes, no problem. He has seven boys there. He has eight kids, eight boys, but he, David, he doesn't even factor into the equation. He's still out taking care of the sheep. He's only got the seven sons there. And Samuel comes along and he looks and the first one he sees is alive and he says, surely this has got to be the guy, Right? He could see outwardly tall, good-looking guy. And God says, "Uh, Samuel, it's not the guy. Your problem, Samuel, is you're looking on the outside. I'm seeing on the inside. 
And eventually we know the story. He picks David. The least likely of Jesse's sons becomes the king. Well, why does God do this? We're going to see. I think there's, there's something we need to understand about God's choice and God's call in our lives. We're going to examine it. You know, sometimes we look at the Christmas story and we, 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 we tell it, but I want to bring it into the 21st century. And I want to move from Mary for a minute. We'll look at her story, but I want to look at your story. We're going to touch on Elizabeth because some of us maybe think, well, we're too old for God to use us. But how many know God picked Elizabeth too to do something very special? So I'm going to argue there's nobody too young and there's nobody too old. But God's going to pick people, and you and I may not pick these people. As a matter of fact, I'm looking at people God's picked. It's you and me. And we sometimes are the least likely people. But we need to understand, why does God do this? Why is God calling? And what do we, can we learn from God's call in our lives? And I think there's, there's three general elements to God's calling. And I want to take a look at those. And this first one is determined by our response. What, what's our initial reaction when God is calling us? First of all, he's calling us to become a follower of his. That's step one. We've got to get that straight, right? But he's not just calling us to follow him uh, you know, to receive our salvation. I think God's calling is far more extensive than that. He's calling us into a life. He's calling us into a vocation. He's calling us into a direction. He's calling us uh, in, into a, a world that's going to look a lot different than what we thought our world was going to be. Now, it, it, it may be exhilarating at first. Maybe we go, wow, God's picked me. Or maybe we feel overwhelmed by it. Me, I don't think I can do this, God. You know what I mean? We have kind of different mixed responses to it. So let's take a look at the choosing of Mary for a minute. I say she's young, insignificant. Uh, I mean, if you're, if you're talking about messianic expectations in the nation of Israel, I mean, most people thought the Messiah would come and do what? He'd be a ruler. He would defeat the Romans. He probably is going to be an aristocrat, upper class type of person. Uh, that's not... The, the Messiah that God intends to bring to Israel at that moment is so unlike what these guys are expecting. How many know that's true? That's why Jesus was crucified. They, they thought he was a false Messiah, but he wasn't. They had a wrong understanding of God, what God was about to do. Sometimes we develop a wrong thinking about what God's about. We develop a wrong approach. We, you know, we, we want you know, the spectacular. We want things done now. And, you know, God has got a game plan, and he works his plan, and sometimes it seems to develop very slowly. It took hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene. He was setting the, 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 the table for this moment in human history, and Jesus comes on the scene, but he's born, you know, of all places, in a little town called Bethlehem at that time was nothing, and, uh, it, you know, and to get... Joseph and Mary down to Bethlehem, we know the story, he moves the heart of an emperor to create a new taxation scheme, which I'm sure everybody was happy with, right? Higher taxes. I know how all Canadians respond to higher taxes. We're all happy about that, you know, right? So, and he has to, you know, bring his pregnant wife all the way down to Bethlehem to register in his town of lineage. And Jesus is born in Bethlehem, but not, you know, in someone's house. There was only room in a stable, and that's where Jesus was born. All alone, Joseph and Mary, no mother, no support, no nothing. And sometimes we look at our lives and we go, where's God in my life with no support, no different? 
There's all these difficulties in my life. Does God really care about me? Well, the answer is, of course he does. But there's a reason for it. There's always a reason for what God's doing. So we, we turn. Here's, you know, I look at Mary, and, I, you know, she was shocked. How many know that Mary was stunned when this angel appeared to her? She was overwhelmed by this experience. Uh, so let's take a look at the story. Picking in verse 26, starts in Luke chapter one. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. Right off the bat, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll give you one of the expectations everybody had. Most people believed that if they had a child and it was gonna be the Messiah, that they were already married, okay? So this is outside the box already. It's, everything about this story is outside the box. Okay, follow that. He's a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. This is very important. Nobody picked up on the idea that the Messiah would have to be born of a virgin. Wait, 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 wait a minute, Pastor. Doesn't Isaiah talk about that? Well, yeah, it does. But you see, the word that's used there can be translated in one of two ways. It can be either a virgin or a young woman. It doesn't have to be necessarily a, a, a woman that's, you know, has never had a relationship with a man. It doesn't. It's, it de depends on its context. Now, Matthew picks that up, quotes that passage from Isaiah and says, yeah, it has to be a virgin. And it makes sense when you consider who Jesus is because he's, not an, an, he's unusual in many ways. First of all, he's sinless. How many know there's no other human being that's ever lived on the planet that was sinless? Number one, okay? And a lot of people could talk about you know, mythology, being sons of God, but only one person was actually the only begotten of the Father, and that's Jesus. And Jesus is actually, he has a heavenly father, but you know, he has a stepfather, Joseph, but he doesn't, you know, that's, that's a stepfather. That's not the earthly, he doesn't have an earthly biological father. This is actually a miracle. So it, if we have a hard time with this part of the story, we're gonna have a hard time believing that he is God in the flesh because that's who he is. That's why the virgin birth is such an important theological point. If you deny that point, then you're denying the fact that Jesus is actually God. We have to understand the story. We have to understand what's going on here. It's a very powerful element to the story. The angel said to her, greetings you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Notice Mary's response. It says, uh, okay. Mary was greatly troubled. She was disturbed by these words. <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of a greeting is this, I'm highly favored? You see, a lot of people impute to Mary that the reason why she is chosen is because there's something intrinsically great about Mary. The focus is on Mary and her character. No, she's favored because God chose her. It's got nothing to do with who she is, it's got to do with God's choosing. That's what makes her favored. Excuse me, God is choosing her. God is showing grace to her. Wow. Listen, Robert Stein says, Mary had been graced by God in that she had been chosen to bear God's son. She had not been chosen for this task because she possessed a particular piety or holiness of life that merited this privilege. See, that's how our mind naturally works. I mean, if God's gonna choose somebody to do that, they, they have to be extremely holy. Come on now. That's how we think. The text suggests no special worthiness on Mary's part. 
Why Mary is favored? Because God chose her. I like what Walter Liefeld says. He says, Mary is highly favored because she is the recipient of God's grace. Can I just say something? You and I are highly favored. If you're a child of God this morning, you are highly favored. And God did not pick you because you were so amazing. You and I didn't deserve it. It's unmerited. It's God's grace that comes into our lives. I'm not trying to put Mary down whatsoever. I think she's amazing. I think she is blessed. She went through a lot to be in this role. This was not an easy task. How many say it was not easy? She was misunderstood. She almost lost uh, her engagement with Joseph. We know that for a fact. Matthew tells us that. It was difficult. You know, she was looked down upon. She was, you know, it was kind of a scandalous situation. As a matter of fact, when Jesus is in his ministry, you know, he was ridiculed and mocked. And and the statement was, we know who our father is. You don't know who your dad is. Jesus goes, oh yeah, I know who he is. You think you know him, but you don't. He knew his dad was the father in heaven. It's very powerful. But Mary went through a lot of things going through this situation. You know, a lot of times as Christians, we act like, you know, how come I'm going through all these things? Listen, we live in a sin-tainted world. We live with all kinds of challenges. You know, struggle is a part of our lives. How many have kind of figured that out? And I've discovered one thing about people and their character. People who have gone through struggle and have learned to trust God in struggle come out refined. There's something that's happening. It's a refining work in our lives that God is producing. So, you know, sometimes we're going through all these things and we're we're saying, well, why, why is this happening to me? God is, you know, the scripture teaches all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What's God's purpose? To conform you into the image of his son. God has a goal for your life. God has a goal for my life. It's to make us like Jesus. Sometimes we go, I don't like the refining process, Pastor. I don't like the pain I'm going through. I don't like being misunderstood. I don't like the criticism. I don't like these things. God goes, yeah, but I'm using those things. I notice sometimes he delivers us and sometimes he just gives us the grace and strength to go through them. How many have discovered that? That's how it works. We need to understand that. Have the right understanding, right expectation. Okay. That's how God comes to each of us. It's not what we do for him, rather it's what he has done for us. Isn't that beautiful? Flip it around. You know, what has God done for me? Well, he saved me. He's given me eternal life. He comes to us and he chooses us. As a matter of fact, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's talking to us through this text as well. He says, you didn't choose me. Now, we think we chose him. God said, no, no, I loved you before you first loved me. I loved you first before you loved me. I chose you, but I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit. God has an expectation in our life. God wants us to become fruitful in our lives. Everybody see that? There's a goal here. There's something in mind when God saves us. Fruit that will last, it will endure, it'll be eternal in nature. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. So I just, I, I just think this thing through and I just say, you know, God comes to us before we merit any consideration. He picks us. You know what our problem is? We tend to look at ourselves, right? Well, we live in this body, you know. We're, that's all part of maturing is moving from being uh, egocentric 
to moving beyond ourselves. It's a journey. I mean, when you're a child, the, when you're an infant, it's, the focus is yourself. And as you mature, it moves beyond yourself. And that's, that's how you know people are maturing is when they move beyond themselves. When people make it all about themselves, that's a very unhealthy place to be. How many know that's true? You would say that person is neurotic. You know, that person is locked into themselves. And it's a very unhealthy place to be. We gotta get past ourselves. We gotta grow up. God wants us to grow up. You know, what we tend to do is we look at our sinfulness, our inadequacies, our unloveliness, and say, why would God want to mess with us? And some of you, that's how the little tape is playing in your head. You see yourselves in a very negative light. What God wants to do is destroy that tape in your brain. Okay? I, I answer it real simply. Why would God mess with us? It's not because of us. It's because of him. Isn't that a beautiful thought? God cho chooses you and me in spite of us, or despite us. I like that. And then he starts bringing healing and renewal and restoration in our lives, and he calls us, and I'm gonna say this, that one part of the journey of health and wholeness in our lives is that you and I begin to serve and partner with him. I think that's all part of it. I, you know, service will make you do things you would never do if you weren't serving. How many say that's true? I can, I can argue from my own life. I'll say it this way. Do you think, and I say this to myself, do you think you would have studied the word of God this diligently if you weren't a pastor? What do you think my answer would be? Not on your life. Not on your life. Not, not this to this degree, I wouldn't have. In other words, I benefited more from being a pastor than even you benefited from me being your pastor. And I'm gonna argue that whatever God calls you and me to do, we benefit the most from it, even though others will benefit from it. Isn't that powerful? So I'm gonna challenge us. We gotta get past, oh, I can't do it. I, you know, let's get beyond the Moses mentality. You know, God calls Moses. Moses has all these reasons why he can't do it. What does God do? He says, no, no, I, you can do it. Because you see, God is not expecting you and I to do it alone. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you. As a matter of fact, when I'm calling you and what I'm calling you to do will be beyond your ability to do it. You'll feel inadequate. Good. You say, why is that good? Then you have to start trusting God. See, people think, I'll only do what I feel comfortable doing. I'll only do what I feel adequate in doing. And then, how many know we never grow because we never get past that level of comfort and adequacy. We'll just stay at a very limited level. Do you know how you grow in life? You have to move past your comfort zone and your adequacy zone. You've got to learn to trust God in realms in your life. You, you would just go, I, I don't know, God. I don't know if I can do this. And sometimes it requires asking other people for help. That's a good thing. That's humbling. How many know that's humbling? He wants us to get beyond ourselves. He wants us to grow. He wants us to develop. He wants us to mature. Okay. Some of you don't know. Um, I think we, we need to look past who we are to who God is and what he has done on our behalf and what he wants to do in our lives. And in Christ, I want to just say this, we are forgiven. So stop looking at your past. You're a new creation. You're a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things become new. I'm not going to allow my past to define my present or my future. 
As a matter of fact, I'm gonna start looking at the word of God and saying, who do you say that I am, God? And when you start understanding your identity in Christ, I am forgiven. I am a beloved child of God. I've been adopted into his family. I've been equipped by the Holy Spirit. God's living inside of me. God has a purpose for my life. God has put gifts inside of me that are designed to be released. Wow. In Christ, we are favored and standing in the place of divine blessing. Do you know what he said? You are highly favored, Mary. I want, to just, I want you to do something right now. I want you to put your name there. I am highly favored. You chose me. I am highly favored. Can you say that to yourself? I am highly favored. Not because of who I am, but because of who you are and because you chose me. Isn't that beautiful? That's how we need it. We gotta stop focusing on ourselves. We gotta focus upward. We gotta look up, not in. How many say, if I could get past myself, I could probably do something? <laughs> right? Isn't that true? So I'm, I'm telling you, stop looking inward. Look upward. Is it making sense to you? I'm, God's picked me. I'm on his team. Hey, listen, if you got God on your team, you've you got a winning team. You've got the superstar on your team. You know, how many get the picture? You know, is that beautiful? I love it. When God calls, I think we also need reassurance. Everybody here probably knows that. You know, Mary was kind of troubled by this visitation, the words of the angel. Uh, we don't see ourselves as highly favored. She didn't either. We need to be reassured. We need to be comforted. That's what I'm trying to tell you today. That's, you're highly favored. You know, you're in God's good book. He's picked you. You're on the right team. We're going in the right direction. We're on the winning side. How many ways can I say it? Are we catching on? Can we do it? Absolutely. If God tells you, I want you to go do that, you go, okay, God, I don't know about me, but I know about you. Hey, I always tell this to God. If you're not showing up, I'm not going. I'm like Moses. If you're not going, I'm not going. But hey, if you're telling me to go there and you're going with me, then that's fine. Let's go. Because as far as I'm concerned, I'm I'm leaning heavily on you, Lord, to get us through. Right? If you you don't show up, this is going to be embarrassing. You know, just letting you know, it's going to be embarrassing. The fact that he chooses us with great areas of responsibility is an expression of confidence, trust, and love toward us. I'm going to say one thing my dad did right in my life. This is the most profound thing. My dad trusted me and gave me unusual levels of responsibility at every level of my life. And you know what that produced? Well, it produced a sense of esteem in my life because he said, I believe you can do this. I'm giving this to you. And I didn't want to let my dad down, so I just went and did it. And guess what? I did it. How many think that's powerful? See, you need to understand God wants us to believe that it can be done. He wants to give us responsibility. Uh, You know, I, I remember years ago, Dr. Leith Anderson, I had him as a teacher, great pastor, and eventually became the president of the American Evangelical Association. Wrote a number of books. He was in a chapel service, and in that chapel service he spoke a message. I have never forgotten it, because usually he says when we preach a sermon, we're asking people to trust God. But this morning he says, I'm gonna ask, can God trust you? Okay, that was his whole thing. Can God trust you? 
But I want to add on to his message and say this. Can God trust us? Uh, the answer is yes. God can trust us. You say, how do you know that? He chooses to trust us. Do you know you have to give trust to somebody in life? I have no problem trusting God. I'm going to trust him. He's been good to me. I don't worry about him. Can I trust people? Some of them. Totally. Some people, well, they're not quite trustworthy. But if we will learn to trust God, and here's how it works. I believe that God trusts us so much, he, first of all, he trusts us with himself. <laughs> That's pretty good. Then he trusts us with his message of life. Here, I'm going to send you out with my message. If you guys don't do the job, some people are going to not be saved. How's that? You know, I've come to this conclusion that wherever I don't, when I disobey God, not only do I suffer, but people around me suffer as well. By many, Paul, uh, Paul's writing about Jesus, by one man's obedience, many became righteous. By one man's disobedience, the entire world went into sin. Isn't that true? Read Romans, it tells you that. Why am I saying this? When you and I don't obey God, people suffer around us, not just ourselves. The people that we should have been there for them, we're not there for them because we're being irresponsible at that point. But when you and I obey God and do what God's asking us to do, not only will your life be blessed, but people around you will be blessed as a result. You know, Patty and I were talking this morning, really early in the morning, and we just talked about our lives, and we said, you know, we couldn't have a better life because it was the life that God chose for us, and I'm amazed at how God's blessed our lives. He's taken care of us all through the journey. You know, I've been a Christian a long time now, and I can tell you, God is trustworthy. You can trust him. You can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your future. If you just do what he's asking you to do, it will be the best life possible. You can't, you can't even get a better life than that. Most of us are afraid to follow God wholeheartedly because we feel like if we have to follow God, we'll have to give up something. The only thing you're giving up is yourself. And that's not a bad thing to give up. Jesus said it. You want to save your life, you'll lose it. You want to lose your life for my sake and the gospel's sake, you'll save it. I can say that is so true. Go for it, guys. Each of us has been given a specific responsibility. Mary was given an amazing responsibility here. But let's take a look at the second element, the practical outworking of that calling. What does it mean in a real world of daily living to be what, what does it mean to be called out? What does it mean to fulfill our calling before God? Like Mary did. She said, okay, Lord, I, I believe what you're saying is true. Let's do it, okay? What does it really mean in a practical way? J.I. Packer says the terminology of calling has two subordinate applications in the New Testament. I'll explain what he's gonna say here in a minute. God's summon and designation of individuals to particular functions and offices in his redemptive plan. In other words, God's calling you to a task. That's what he's telling us like an apostle, pastor, a nurse, whatever it is, okay? Then to the external circumstances and state of life in which a man's effectual calling took place. Now if you look at those scriptures, you'll find out what he means by that is if you're married, when you become a Christian, you're still married. It doesn't unchange that state. If you're a single person, you're still single. You know, if, if you're a slave socially in that time, in the first century, you would still be a slave. You're not, you may be free spiritually, but you're still in the social condition in which you were saved. Is everybody following this? You know, you don't, you know, you can't go, you know, 
uh, I'm a Canadian, now I just, okay, now that I'm saved, I can be anybody I want. No. See, only our world thinks in a warped sense, you know. You know, people, they go, what you think is what you are. Well, nah, you, you are what God designed you to be. We have some limitations, guys. You know, does everybody understand that? Okay, that's good. So, why am I saying all this? Well, simply put, God summons us to a, a task, but we're also placed by God uh, prior to our salvation in a social context. You know, I was born a male in Canada, okay, in the 1950s. That's the social context. God put me there. I wasn't born in Brazil. I wasn't born in Africa. I wasn't born in India or China. I was born here. I'm not saying it's better or worse. I'm just saying that's the social context. We have to accept that. You know, we're living in a society today is in a state of high rebellion against anything of has authority or God because the ultimate authority is God. And we're living in self-denial. And so we're getting more and more confused in our minds. It's dangerous. So let's take a look here what Paul reminds us. He says, you know, God calls usually the nobodies of this world to be his somebodies. Let me show you how Paul says it here in the book of Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called into the salvation. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Hey, this is, a, do you feel a little put down now? He's going, most of us weren't brilliant, okay? Uh, he says, not many were influential. You know, do you know it's really hard to reach some of these people that are really influential? Because they think they've got it all together. Not many were of noble birth, not a lot of people of aristocratic background. Now, there's some of them that became Christians. You know, there's great stories of very wealthy people. But they're the very few of them. Some of them, but very few. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Oh, okay. Uh, thank you, God. That's not very flattering. But it's true. You know, like, let's face it. Before you were a Christian, you were living without the fear of God in your life. Therefore, you qualified as being a fool, biblically speaking. I qualified for that. It says, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. What, what is God saying? I choose the unlikely people, and when I start working through them, everyone goes, they're scratching their heads and going, how are they doing this? I know this person. They're not this good. You know? That's true. They can't figure it out, you know? Like, I can't believe that God would use you like that. That doesn't make any sense to me. I, I know who you are. I grew up with you. I know all of your antics and shenanigans. I can't, you know, my close friend, when I was in, uh, a little kid uh, living in Newestminster on Sandringham Avenue, I have a friend named Brian. You know, he came to visit me when I was first pastoring in Red Deer. You know, you know what he says to me? I can't believe you're doing this. I go, well, why is that? You're the kid that wouldn't go to church. You're the kid that used to skip church. So I said to him, yeah, and God caught me. <laughs> and I've been paying for it ever since. I'm putting a lot more time in church than I ever have when I was a kid, let me tell you. I was just give, giving him a bad time. But he goes, I'm so surprised by this. He was surprised because God takes the least likely kids and puts them in places people wouldn't expect. And he does that not just with a person like me, but he does it with all of us. This is amazing to you. You know, so we can't walk around going, oh, I'm inadequate, I'm a nobody. God goes, yeah, I like those people. I'm picking you. 
You know? In other words, when God decides to create his super team, he, he, he walks, I mean, I know this is not flattering, but I have to say it anyways, he's looking at the least likely to succeed, and he picks all of those people on his team, and then when we come up to play baseball, we trounce the team that everyone thinks is going to win because we have the superstar Jesus on our team. Is this making sense to us? Because now he's living inside of each one of us, and all of a sudden we're doing stuff, and people are going, how are you doing that? And what do we get to say? It's Jesus. Who's getting the credit? Jesus. That's the point. Look what he says here in verse uh, 28. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God gets all the credit, all the honor, all the glory. Amen? That's what it's supposed to be. So when you say, ah, God, I can't do that stuff, God goes, I already know. That's why I'm picking you. So don't give them that excuse. It's not going to fly with God. I've read the Bible. Gideon tried it. Moses tried it. Uh, I mean, we'll just go down the list. I mean, you know, Mary, bless her heart, she didn't make a She just asked, I don't know how this is going to all work out. But that was a, that was a fair question in her, in her situation. So what does God expect of me? You know, uh, after we question why God would choose us, I think I've answered that question. If you're, an, if you're an unlikely person, maybe you consider yourself weak or nobody or whatever, you're ripe for the pickings as far as God's concerned, okay? So now you're on his team, so then what does God expect of me? You know, how's this gonna get done? Well, from the human side of things, it seems impossible. And I'm gonna tell you right now, God always gives us more than we think we can chew. Think about that for a minute. He's gonna give you an assignment that's bigger than you. Why would he do that? so that he can move powerfully through your life. He wants to use human vessels to do extraordinary things. He wants to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. I like that about God. You know, so Mary asked the question, well, how's this gonna be? You know, I'm a virgin. I, I don't even have a husband. I mean, yeah, I may be engaged, but there's, and, and, the, and, and so he, she, he asked a great question. Uh, what we need to understand, of course, what is he, he tells her how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come over, over you. It's going to overshadow you. And that which is going to be put in your womb, that seed, is going to be from the Most High God. It's going to be a spiritual transaction. And I think what we fail to understand is that much of what God calls us to do requires miracles. He plans on helping us do it. He doesn't expect that it will be accomplished apart from him. You know, you know I, I thought about... You know, planting a church, you know how much, how, how crazy this is? You start with nothing, and you have to believe God for everything. Uh, that's where I was when I came here in 1984. We had, you know, six adults and three teenagers that were actually committed to the church. There was some other people that were very deeply interested, and they eventually came on board pretty quickly. But I'll tell you something. You know, everything you see is actually God doing now, it didn't happen overnight. And I believe that God, how he works, is usually the way he did with the Israelites. He said, everywhere your foot steps in the promised land, it'll become yours. So God does it step by step. You know, most of us, we want, you know, poof, you know, just bring it on, right? You know, that's kind of our mentality. But it does happen, and we had miracles in this church. I'm going to tell you that. God provided miracles. We would not be here today if it wasn't for God's miraculous 
provisions, supplies, right people at the right time. I remember our first music pastor. Some of you probably remember John and Norma. Uh, that was a miracle. And look what they brought to our church at that moment. A very important time in the life of our church. They came at the right moment. That was a gift from God. God kept doing this over and over again. You know, I could just go down and talk, start talking about one miracle after another. And God is still doing it. That's the beauty of it. He doesn't stop. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that I, I put down, one thing that strikes me in this passage is, there's an e and it's equally true in our lives, is a marriage between the natural and the supernatural. You see, a lot of times we say, well, it's just, just naturally happening. But yet there's a supernatural side to it, okay? So we're living life in a natural sort of way, and yet there's a spiritual dimension side that everyone wants to know, oh, look at that. How did that happen? Or, How did that happen? It just a God thing happened. And we have God moments where these things happen. But we have to be willing to participate. Let me move on to the third element. That's the challenge involved. How many know anything worthwhile in life, there's a cost to it? That's the way it works. We all know that. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, sometimes we have to give up our plans and our goals and our agenda and our desire, okay? I just told you, some things you have, might have to give up here. And, it, it, and sometimes... Uh, we may be under, misunderstood. Anything we do means that others may misunderstand, and that's one reason why so many people pass on God's great appointments for their lives. They want to play it safe. Okay? Now, can I just say something? You know this idea of playing it safe? It's a myth. There's no such thing as playing it safe. Think about it. Who knows the future? What's the right answer, guys? Who knows the future? Who's smarter than you and me? God is. Okay, so if God's asking you and I to do something, don't you think he knows what's best and he knows what's gonna happen in the future? Why don't we just go along with it? But you see, we think, oh, we're gonna play it safe. No, you're gonna lose out. So don't think about playing safe. Think about embracing what God has for us. As a matter of fact, Think about how radical this was. Mary was minding her own business, engaged to the town carpenter, quiet little town, quiet little life, all of a sudden an angel pops into her life and changes her whole story. She has to give up her body. Anybody figure this out? I mean, you know, carrying a baby, that's a nine-month commitment, as far as I know, right? And not only that, you know, now she's got not just an ordinary child. I mean, how many would like to raise the perfect child? No, you think that way. I don't think so. Mom and dad are getting convicted, right? Because this kid is showing them up. They're ordinary people. Jesus is, you know, he's doing, he does things that it's mind-boggling. And I remember this comedian, he, he was talking about James, the half-brother of Jesus. You know, how, how would you like to live with, in that household? And Mary would be saying to him, why can't you just be a little more like Jesus? That'd be a tough act to follow. All the siblings, you know, trying to live up to Jesus, right? I mean, if you've ever been compared to your sibling, that would be the ultimate. Tough, tough act to follow. But think about it. And then, you know, they're running away because Herod wants to kill them, so they end up fleeing into Egypt. I mean, there were things happening in their life because of who Jesus is. Isn't that true? Right. You know, so look what the scripture teaches us. 
as believers. This is what Paul says. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your what? Your what? Your what? Your bodies. Oh, that tells me my body's not even my own. See, we have this little space of, this is my part of my life, God. Uh, you're not into, God goes, no, no, I want all of it. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't get squeezed into the world's mold. Don't get led astray by the, where the world has gone. Do you know the world has been led astray? Does everybody know that? I said that last week. So don't buy it. It says, transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. How do I know God's will? Here's how I'm gonna tell you a little secret. You know how you know God's will? You gotta get to know the person called God. You go, how do I get to know God, Pastor? You gotta listen to what he has to say. Where's that found? In the Bible. That means I have to spend time in the Bible. How many are catching on? The people who know God the best are the people who spend time with God. How many think that makes sense? The people you know best are the people you spend the most time with. How many go, that's, that's brilliant, Pastor? Even I could figure that one out. Anybody here can say that's true? How many here say that's true? The person I know the best is the person I spend the most time with. Anybody agree with, with me on that? Okay, right, you got that? Okay, so if we're gonna really get to know God, what does that mean? It's the obvious, I gotta spend time with him. Well, how do I do that? I spend time reading the word, I spend time communicating with God, I spend time praying with him, and the more I spend time with God, the more I get to know what he's like, I get to know his ways, I get to understand what he's thinking, and pretty soon I start to do the will of God, and you know what? Desires are created inside of me, and I go, I really would like to do this, and as I'm praying about it, things begin to open up, and all of a sudden it becomes reality. That's how you know you're in the will of God. How is that? I've just taken away some of the mystique from it, but you know, it requires us to spend time with God. So, I'm running out of time. I wanna to get to this other point. I could see, I could, I'm just skip that. Okay, let's go here. So, Mary is, is promised by the angel. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So what is, she, what is the angel saying? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, right? That's the answer, guys. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. When the Holy Spirit comes on us, we can actually fulfill God's will. You can't do it in your own strength. Listen to what, I'm gonna give you a number of scriptures. Look, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. That word filled there in the Greek tense is a continuous tense. It means continuously be filled with the Spirit. Okay? Ephesians 4.30, earlier it said, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's living inside of you. You ever have those moments when you felt, oh, just did the wrong thing? Anybody get those moments? Holy Spirit saying, hey, wrong check that, got to apologize, got to deal with that, right? Address that. Okay. God has a way of encouraging our lives by showing it, it can be done. I'm going to close with this. Elizabeth is a, a relative of Mary. So what does God do? You're going to say, this is, it seems terrible, but Zachariah and Elizabeth, they can't have children. 
They've prayed and prayed and prayed and they've asked and there's just, God just shut the door. She was barren. They'd given up on this. This is a dream that has gone by the wayside. But then one day Zachariah's in the temple and he's praying and the angel, same angel, Gabriel, hey, God's heard your prayer. I could just imagine if an angel came to me and says, God's heard your prayer. I'm thinking, which one? <laughs> right? Oh, it's the one that you're gonna, you wanted a son, you're getting one. Zachariah was so full of unbelief, he didn't know what to say. Eventually he didn't have anything to say because God, you know, struck him dumb. He couldn't speak. Remember that story. Next thing you know, Elizabeth is pregnant. We picked up the story in her sixth month of pregnancy. This is an impossible pregnancy. This is a miracle pregnancy. This is kind of, foresh you know, it's foreshadowed in the book of Genesis when you see those women who couldn't have children all of a sudden have them like Sarah. This is a very similar theme throughout the scriptures. But now she's pregnant. And so what happens is Elizabeth, who's now pregnant with Jesus, shows up to visit her in-law. Now, I can't even imagine the kind of scolding, criticism, scorn, all the stuff that would go on in Mary's life. Can you imagine her telling her mom I'm pregnant? Probably didn't go over very good. But when she gets to Elizabeth, what happens? The Spirit of God falls on Elizabeth. The baby in her womb is filled with the Spirit. She's le he's leaping for joy inside of her. She begins to prophesy. Is this an amazing story? All of a sudden, Mary is understood by another person who's experienced a miracle. Can I tell you something? When you and I start walking with God and miracles start happening in our lives, the only people that will really get it are other people who are walking with God experiencing miracles in their lives. It's true. And they will be a source of encouragement. So, let's stand as we close the service. And I'm gonna just ask some questions this morning. Because you know, it's a great story. I love this story. It's explaining theologically who Jesus is. That's all wonderful, but I'm also wanting to apply the story to our lives. And so here's where we're at right now. You and I, we can put ourselves in Mary's shoes for a moment. Say to yourself, I'm probably the least likeliest person for God to pick and say, I want you to go do something. Can you see yourself there right now with Mary? God's speaking in your life and you're going, yeah, there's a lot of reasons why I can't do this. And God's going, you have to be willing. See, Mary said, okay, I get it, so be it. She just accepted it. She had no idea where this was gonna take her, but I'll tell you, at the end, she began to just rejoice in God because the next few verses, she's singing songs of praise. How God has raised up the lowly and brought down the high. That's the nature of God. Maybe you're here today. And one of the things that we tend to do is we just withdraw. Withdraw from what God's calling us to. Every person is important. You know, when I think about church, this is how I see it. Think of this church as a human body. How many go, in your body right now, you want every part of your body to function? How many here say, I want it all to function, and I want it to function well? Okay? When you and I are not doing our part, the church suffers. And you suffer. Remember I pointed that out because I believe one of the vehicles God uses to develop us is when we respond to the call of God, say yes to Christ, begin to follow him, and say yes to the task he's given us to do. And we do it 
wholeheartedly. That was my prayer today. Lord, you know, I want to serve you wholeheartedly, diligently, right? I don't want to be lazy, indolent, you know, slothful. The Bible has a lot of negative things to say about that stuff. So we have to say, Lord, help me not to make excuses, but embrace what you're asking me to do. And when I obey God, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You're going to grow spiritually, but also you're going to be a blessing in someone's life who would not be blessed if it wasn't for your obedience. Can I say it that way? So when you and I say yes to God, you're not just saying yes for you. You're saying yes for a whole bunch of people that you don't even know about even into the future. You're saying yes to many lives that are gonna be blessed because of your yes today. Is that powerful? So with every head bowed right now, how many here say, you know what, Pastor? I get what you're saying. You're saying God is calling. He's calling me and he's asking me, will I say yes to that call? And that's the question. Will I surrender my agenda, my will, my, my plan for God's plan? And I'm going to argue with you that God's plan <clears throat> is better than yours. How's that? Does that make sense? It makes so, sense, so much sense to me. It's a better plan. Because God's smarter than me, he's smarter than you, and he knows the future. So how many here are willing to say, yep, I'm going to sign up. I'm going to raise my hand and say, okay, God, even as Mary, the servant of the Lord, said, so be it. I'll do whatever you want me to do, Lord. I'm yours. See, my hand is up. <laughs> I, I, I think this is the most brilliant way to live life. You just go, I'm yours. I'll do whatever you ask me to do, Jesus. I've gone to places I never dreamed I would go to. It's not because I'm excited about going there. I just go because Jesus said, I want you to. Okay, I'm there. And you know what happens? People are blessed as a result. Isn't that right, Paul? Yeah, you've gone to Cuba. It's not easy there. He's gone. Because God said, go. I'll go. Amen? I'm not sending you to a ge geography lesson. I'm going to be sending you to next, your next door neighbor. It could be that simple. It could be your boss. Who knows who he's sending you to? But he's going to send you somewhere. He's going to get you to be involved somehow. He's going to get you to do something. Move past yourself. That's the call today. Move past yourself and say, okay, I know what my liabilities are. I know I'm weak. I know I'm inadequate, but I signed up and God goes, good. You're just the person I need right now because I'm going to work powerfully through you. People are going to look at you and go, how are you doing that? It's a God thing. It's a God thing. So Father, I just pray today, God things will start happening in our lives because we are saying yes to you today, to your task, your calling, your direction for our lives. Help us not to live in fear, but to walk in courage and to be encouraged and to allow you to use our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.